this is Mark Oldie from Rock Garden Studio, and it's time to get into the music. Today's show is brought to you in part by WCZR Code Zero Radio, your go-to for the best alternative and indie music. Find them at live.codezeroradio.com or download the free Code Zero Radio app. And now, let's get into the music. Well, hello everyone, this is Rob, and thanks for tuning in to Into the Music. Whether you're a regular listener or hearing Into the Music for the first time, please consider subscribing to the show. This helps keep the podcast going, and you'll be sure not to miss an episode. Subscribers will get a shout-out and a chance to make an appearance on the show. Just use the link in the show information. Well, producer Mark Goldie returns to the show today, and we're going to talk about the history of recording music. Ever since Thomas Edison made the first phonograph recording on his tinfoil-wrapped cylinder, there's been a steady evolution of how music is recorded. Mark is going to put on his professor's hat today, and he's going to give us a history lesson in recorded music. So welcome back to the show, Mark. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, it's great to have you. So we're actually, we're recording this at your studio, Rock Garden Studio, here in Appleton, Wisconsin. Yep. So I really appreciate you inviting me down here to record this interview. So it's always great to be here. Good. You're always welcome. Thank you. So let's just catch up a little bit first with what's been going on here. And first, I got the chance to listen to Brad Bordini's upcoming album in full. And I got to say, it's incredible. I think it's one of the best pieces of production that's come from here. Wow. There seems to be a certain chemistry on this album, and it happens on Kurt Gunn's albums, too, because the personnel, you've got... Chris Hannaway, you've got Amanda James, Rick Armstrong, um, Kurt Gunn, mm-hmm. and then you, obviously, and now you're throwing Brad into the mix. And what is it about this group? You guys just seem to work so seamlessly and effortlessly. Well, there's two things. One, um, experience. You know, I've worked with these people so many times that they know what to expect from me. I know what to expect from them. Um, so it's it's a real quick process. They're, you know, it isn't like coming in for the first time and getting to know people and all that sort of stuff. So there's that. That's part of the chemistry. The the other thing that's similar between the two projects, whether it's working with Kurt Gunn or, or Brad, is that they leave me alone. And they come in, they lay down their part, and then they leave and they just email me the finished product. So I pretty much have a license to do whatever I want with this stuff. So there's a lot of my own preferences in there, too, you know. Right, yeah. right. Where, where if, if I'm working with just a band, mm-hmm. you know, it's I'm dealing with them and their idiosyncrasies and their process and their preferences. Um, with this, it's a little more on me. You know? Mm-hmm. And and they don't really reject anything. They're pretty happy with it. Brad Brad did explain later that um, I would throw him for a curve every time I'd send him a song because it wasn't what he was expecting. And then Kurt told him, just listen to it for a day. Just let it soak in. You'll get it. And then, you know, he does. And then a day later, he loves it. So Right. Yeah. Right. The album in and of itself is eclectic. But the writing is so consistent that it holds together really well. Yeah, he's a really good writer. And what a big, you know, authoritative voice he has, too. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. 
Now, Michael Grabner's last two singles that were recorded here and produced by you have been tremendous. I I love them. They're for me, they're earworms, mm-hmm. and they're just great things to have stuck in my head. What do you enjoy most about working with Michael? Um, Michael is really easy to work with. He's always always seems to be in a good mood, always appreciative of, of anything you do for him. The thing with, with Michael is I saw him at the beginning. Um, the first time he came in the studio to just do some demos, he wasn't that good. He was really trying, but his pitch wasn't really great. He didn't, didn't have it together yet, but you know, he, he was very determined and within a very short amount of time, um, he got really good. You know, he always wrote good songs, but I mean, now as a performer, now he's capable of more things than he was before. And at first, the first record we did was very, this is a Wisconsin folk record and it's the way it is, you know, kind of thing. And this time around, we approached it as more of a rock pop rock sort of thing where mm-hmm. there's less rules. We can go anywhere we want, you know, where right. if you stick to more of a Nashville or a folk thing, it, there's parameters you got to kind of stay within. Right. So, right. Now on both Brad's and Michael's projects, uh, you got to play some lead guitar mm-hmm. on them and your style of playing gives their music more of an edgier feel, which is kind of cool, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So is that really fair to say that? Oh, sure. For yeah. sure. Um, and especially if I plug a Les Paul into a Marshall stack, <laughs> which I do a lot, <laughs> um, it's kind of my trademark. It ends up being that way. Um, I'm you know, a lot of, we used to use Woody Larson a lot. Yeah. And I always looked at Woody's a much better player than I am. I'm much more well-versed, well-rounded, but he's more cerebral and I'm more visceral. So, you know, I'm more, you know, stomp in the room and smash stuff where he's, you know, making it beautiful. So depending on the project, you know, I can either, you know, hire Woody um, or do something Woody would have done or do what I do, which is classic rock. Right, right. So. Yeah. Now, another recent album that you recorded here at Rock Garden is This Handsome Strangers, A Mix of Sun and Clouds. Mm -hmm. And um, what was your role in the project? Um, Well, okay. so now I'm going to do an answer to something Ian said in another interview um, where he said I wasn't involved for the first half. And then eventually I kind of warmed up to him or whatever. I didn't know what the hell was going on for the first half. (laughs) This is music that was, you know, great, but kind of foreign to me. And I didn't really know exactly what they were going after. Um, Ian is a very um, super talented guy. But as far as electric guitar, he's a real noisy guy. His mm-hmm. guitar makes noise. He he puts three distortion pedals, you know, one into another one. The amp's always feeding back. There's always noises. There's just this chaos at all times. And at first, it, it was a little frustrating because I like things organized and quiet. But now, listening to the record, it's like that chaos is the most important aspect of the record. And yeah, it was a fresh project. Once I started to wise up to what was actually happening, then I then I could get involved. But before then, I I can't tell them what to do because I don't know what they're doing. Right. You know, so. Yeah. I got the opportunity to catch their debut gig last week. Yeah, I missed it. I, I wanted to go down there. And it was every bit as good as the album. And that cool. album just knocked my socks off. I still fail to be able to categorize the thing yeah. because it's just got so much in it. It's like Radiohead on crack or something. I, you know, <laughs> 
it's it's neat that I, I hear his influences and all this stuff. And he doesn't plagiarize or anything. But I came to age in the '90s, so I'm very familiar with that style and, and all those sort of things. And and the band really really came together and, and put together a really nice product. Yeah, they did. And I think including Andy McNamara. Who didn't play bass before this. No. <laughs> it's like I was a little confused because him and his twin brother do the opposite roles in their band. And I saw him and I, I was just, wait, wait, I thought you were the, and eventually I figured out, oh, because the first couple sessions we did, the bass was very new to him. Right. And um, I can hear him progressing through the whole thing. And by the end, he was great. Yeah. yeah. We'll be right back after this short break. Did you know that you can change what you taste by what you hear? How can you use sound to make a deeper connection with your clients? Can we be healed with sound? Sound influences people in their buying decisions and their daily lives. In the podcast audio branding, I explore all of this, both with my own observations as a voice actor of over 15 years and by interviewing knowledgeable professionals in the field of advertising, marketing, music, and science. To have a listen for yourself, visit audiobrandingpodcast.com. Well, I want to listen to a track right now from this album. So here's This Handsome Stranger with 10 to 1.
Saturday mornings keep getting better and better with WCZR Code Zero Radio's Fox Cities Core Show. Unleash your inner music nerd as we dive into an hour of engaging live interviews with some of the best musicians in the Fox Cities. From origin stories to what's on the back burner, you never know where the conversation will go. That's not all. You can be a part of the show by dialing in or joining our YouTube chat. It's Fox Cities Core every Saturday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Central Standard Time. More local, more often. Code Zero Radio. Now, Mark, what are some of the other releases that you've worked on this year that you recommend listeners check out? I've gotten this wave of bands from Milwaukee coming up. Um, I worked with one guy who said, oh, my son lives in Milwaukee and he has a band and he really likes my recording. So he wants to talk to you. Um, That was a group called Wonderful Bluffer. Strange, but wonderful band. And they have a, a release coming out really soon. And they told their buddies... And they told their buddies, and they told their buddies, and now the Milwaukee scene's coming up here, which is great. They got this really cool thing. They're all in their early 20s, and they love the 1970s. So I'm their guy. And it's it, it, we can relate on a, you know, here's a 21-year-old sitting at the Wurlitzer playing Super Tramp and Billy Joel and, and all this stuff. Yes. And like, who are you? <laughs> and I asked them, I'm like... <laughs> They're obsessed with Genesis and Rush and, and all this stuff. And I'm like, what, what, why, what, what is this? And they're like, well, our parents forced it on us. You know, my dad started bringing me to Rush concerts when I was six. And, you know, so it's a, it's a generational sort of thing. The way polka is handed down to you in Pulaski. Right. You know, so, um, so it's a lot of fun. I know exactly how to work with these people. Uh, another one, Stone Theory, um, one of my favorites, Modern Joey is another group. Um, we have four more songs to record, which I think we're doing next month, and then their record will be done. Um, so there's some neat stuff coming out of there. It's cool. I do think, you know, I, I have this thing that always says support your local economy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if like when, when groups move from Appleton to Milwaukee or whatever, um, once in a while they come back to record, but I totally, you know, support your local recording studios. You know, those guys need you down there. Right. So. Absolutely. Now, one of the things that I have alluded to many times in the last couple of months on the show is the singer-songwriter movement that is going on in the Fox Valley, mm-hmm. in Green Bay. And you've had the opportunity to work with so many of these people, mm-hmm. whether it be, like we mentioned before, Kurt Gunn, Brad Bordini, uh, Tom Thiel, Amelia Ford. Yeah. Um, so many of these people, what's your view on it? Because you, you kind of seem to be the hub here. I have a more organic approach to recording and production. And I think when people record here, that's why, yes, I have top of the notch vintage equipment and, and a great facility and everything. And that does matter. But, um, you know, I, I think the, the new generation of, of recordists, um, are really looking at things in a different way. And that doesn't necessarily lend itself to singer-songwriters. Mm-hmm. So, so I think that's kind of the connection there. And, and one thing, too, is I'm bored with the Americana movement. Mm-hmm. I've heard it. I've heard those three chords my whole life. I'm, you know, so let's do something with it. Right. That was kind of the thing with Brad. Mm-hmm. is um, he had very much that approach. And I'm like, it, it challenged me every song to take the same three chords and do something different with it. So I think that's what we're doing. And we're Michael Grabner again. You know, we've decided, okay, we're going to do a rock record. Wait, wait till you hear the next Kurt Gunn record. That, that <laughs> one's going to throw everyone for a loop. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Well, you alluded to your vintage equipment, mm-hmm. which I think is a good segue into 
what you and I had kind of talked about before the interview, and that is giving folks kind of a a history lesson in Mm -hmm. recorded music. And what brought this subject up is the recent release of the Beatles' new single, Now and Then, Mm -hmm. and the technologies that went into recording this. I mean, all the way from a boombox to AI. If you don't know what AI is, it's artificial intelligence. So what I would like to do is give the listeners, like I said, a bit of a, a history of recording music, which leads up to a track like this. So when music was first being recorded for wide distribution, what were studios basically like at that time? There were no studios. That's something that evolved through time. There would be a a man who owned a machine, and he would come to your rehearsal space or your show or something like that and record that way. It was Recording at first was much more to capture a live experience than fabricate something or, you know, use this studio as a as as an instrument sort of thing so say uh, let's look at the history of emi which is the abbey road studio Mm -hmm. now um emi was a technology manufacturer they built toasters and radios and record players so um they needed to re if if you sell someone a record player wouldn't you want to sell them the records to put on the record player Mm -hmm. so what they did is they had the studio to record classical music and um, it was just for that reason. They didn't, they didn't set out to be the coolest studio in the world, to someday discover a band like the Beatles or anything like that. It was just to build product for their other hardware. Here, um, there were some visionaries in the, in the late 40s and 50s, because you could go to a radio station and record. Mm-hmm. And that's where, like in the 40s, that's the early, you know, the blues guys and country guys. And then you got guys like Sam Phillips, who was kind of a visionary, who, you know, discovered Elvis and that, that whole role of rock and roll. And he basically, he figured out isolation of like, okay, if I put them in one room and me in another room, I can hear what the microphone is hearing, not what my ears are hearing in front of them. So they were always one-man operations, tiny little things, really small little spaces where they cram a, a whole bunch of people. And it just kind of grew from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was the evolution of the recording studio in the first half of the 20th century when 78s were the reigning recorded format? You have to go back way before then mm-hmm. and think that um, sheet music publishing was the first way to mass distribute music. Right. Because everybody had a piano in their house because there wasn't a lot of forms of entertainment. And sheet music was the vinyl of the day. Um, and then the player piano. And with the player piano, you can actually edit you fill up a hole, you put a little piece of tape over a hole, you just erased a note. You poke another hole, you added a note, you know, and people used to actually edit these things. Mm-hmm. So um, the concept started way before then. You know, art always follows commerce. So once people saw that there was money to be made with pop stars, mm-hmm. um, that's when money could be stuck into recording studios and top-notch equipment and stuff like that. So it, it evolved from a one-room sort of you know, Buddy Holly's situation with, with one or two microphones. And very shortly by, you know, the early 60s, we had some really nice facilities already because, you know, the records were a commodity. Right. Now, how did the growing assortment of, say, microphones and magnetic tape change the game? Well, magnetic tape um, 
there was experiments with that, but it didn't sound very good. And I could be wrong with this, but it was the Germans. In World War II, after um, we cleaned their clock, um, we stole all their technology and brought it back. <laughs> and then they reverse engineered the, this stuff. And one of them was the audio tape machine. And I believe mm-hmm. that they had invented, or we did shortly after that, biasing. And mm-hmm. that's what changed everything. I'm not going to get into technical terms of that, but if you, nope. if you hear of biasing, um, that made tape much, much more clear. Mm-hmm. And now things really started to take off. So I forgot the original question already. <laughs> oh, how did the growing assortment of microphones... Oh, microphones and, and tape Yeah, because in this time you had ribbon mics being developed, mm-hmm. condenser mics, you name it. Yeah. Um, well... Back in the day, you got what you could afford, really. And if you were a big company like CBS, you can afford the best of the best. Well, they made their own you know, equipment, so they made the big ribbon mics. Mm-hmm. And very limited in bandwidth, um, very sensitive. Um, you could wreck a ribbon mic by moving it across the room too fast. Um, the ribbons are very thin and susceptible to all sorts of stuff. Then you've got dynamic mics, which... Not as dazzling as, you know, one of the great mics, but they're very durable. So you could put them right in the inside of a tuba. And then once they started using multiple mics on a group, that's when they started to have more control. Now, orchestral leaders didn't appreciate that because they were the mixer. They mixed in the air. If they wanted something louder, they're the ones who produced it. Now you've got five microphones, and that other guy in the other room is deciding, you know, the volumes. And they hated that. They hated technology. They hated multi-track, all that stuff. But it's the way things were going to be. And um, slowly, and you know, there are some there are some '50s recordings that are still dazzling to this day if you play them on a really nice system. Some Buddy Holly and and some of those, you know, they're stylistically in the past, but right. they still sound very very clear and in your face, and you know, right, yeah, right. Well, you mentioned Buddy Holly, and and the first thing that comes to mind is the song "Every Day," mm-hmm. and I'm like. What an impeccable recording yes. for its time. Yeah, and um, I don't remember the guy's name who recorded him, but he kind of innovated some things, too. That's when Echo was starting to come in. Right. And they did Echo with misusing a tape machine. So mm-hmm. it was playing back later than what was being recorded onto it, which created this Echo, which in the 50s they were all intrigued with. But they didn't have mixers for recording or anything. There mm-hmm. was radio equipment, and that was it. So if you see pictures of Buddy Holly in the studio, a lot of times he's singing into two microphones. One is to the recorder. The other microphone is going to a tape deck as a delay Mm -hmm. and then going back to the mixer. So they had to just really come up with crazy ways of of doing, you know, innovating and stuff. Right. What they had. Yeah. I remember reading about Sam Phillips recording Johnny Cash and getting Mm -hmm. that delay. Yeah. And that became a staple of Johnny's son recordings. That had to have sounded so modern in its day because it's something that doesn't really happen too much in nature um, because... Even if you hear an echo, a very clear echo, there's diffusion. It gets splashed, you know, mm-hmm. where a strict echo that's just copying what you're doing had to have sounded like the future. I'm sure it did. And that's why people got so excited about it. Right. Now, in the latter 1950s and going into the 60s, multi-track recording was developing. Mm-hmm. And can you explain for uh, the average listener who may yeah. not know what it is, what is multi-track recording 
and what maybe its purpose is. Okay. So multi-track recording is, and depend, it, you can have it from two tracks up to hundreds of tracks, um, is where you can record something, and then you can re- play it back and record along with it on an adjacent track. So now you've got two recordings of yourself. In the modern day, multi-track a lot of times is we're using multiple microphones, where on a drum set I have two microphones on the bass drum, two on the snare drum, I have microphones for the cymbals, microphones for the toms in the room, the the whole thing. If I have them on separate tracks on a multi-track, now I can rebalance that later. But if I take all those microphones and mix them down and then record the mix down, I can't separate them. Well... AI can now, mm-hmm. but at, up until this point, you couldn't separate them back out and do anything about it. So if your hi-hat's too loud and your snare's too quiet, there ain't nothing you can do. But if I have them on separate tracks, now I can do that. So then on top of that, then we're also doing overdubs, which is um, listening to something that's already recorded, usually the, the rhythm bed, we call it, mm-hmm. which is bass, drums, maybe a guitar, piano, whatever. And then while we're listening to that, we're adding another part. So that's, that's basically multi-track recording. Okay. Now, it's interesting to see what different studios had back in those days, you know, in the late 50s, early 60s. We talked about Abbey Road mm-hmm. earlier. And, for example, Abbey Road back in the late 50s, early 60s, had two-track capability. Mm-hmm. And until probably about mid-63, if I'm not mistaken, when they got their first four-track capability. And you can really hear a difference, say, for example, in 1963, The Beatles, She Loves You. Mm -hmm. You know, great song, but you can hear a distinct change in the sound from how that was recorded, and then all of a sudden they get this four-track capability, and they record I Want to Hold Your Hand, their next single, later in the year, and it's so much crisper, clearer, and more vibrant. Mm-hmm. So was that due to having four-track capability, or was that due to just improved technology overall? So how they used um, multi-tracks back in those days, how they looked at it. Because first you have mono. Okay, so all you can do is play. That's it. And the balance engineer balances. If your balance is wrong, tough. It's just the way it's going to be. Then two-track, what they would do is put the band on one track and then vocals and guitar solos on the other track. Um, When it came to four-track, the mindset was no different. The band was still on one track. And then now we have three tracks to record on. Wow. I can, you know, that's when they started to discover double tracking the same vocal, you know, and stuff like that. So they weren't looking at it as now the bass can be separate from the drums, can be separate from here, which you would think they would do. They were still recording the band in mono. And then now we have three tracks to play with. When they went to a track for, um, I think they were experimenting with that with Let It Be, um, and and mostly on, on Abbey Road, they were still looking at it that way. They were still going, wow, you know, we can record the band on three tracks, and we have all these other tracks to do stuff with, you know. But um, so I, I think the, the improvement that happened there had to do with a couple things. One, um, the same team worked together. Norman Smith was the engineer, George Martin producer, the Beatles. I think the Beatles got better at recording. I think they understood the Beatles more. And the Beatles were taken seriously because they were a hit band. 
and they take a little more time on the recordings now because they know that this is a much more, you know, this, this will be heard by more people where the first couple, no one knew they were going to be successful. You know, George Martin had an inkling that they might have something, but no one expected what was going to happen. So I'm sure the, the, the first record was just a rush job. Just get through it and move on to the next. So I think that had more to do it with than, than anything else. Okay. You started talking a bit about a track and, and even more tracks. Mm-hmm. And really the guy that everybody points to for that type of recording is Les Paul, who most people know because of the Les Paul guitar. Mm-hmm. But Les was really quite the engineer. Yeah, he was, he was, he was an inventor. Now, he invented multitrack. Mm-hmm. Not just the A-track, the multitrack to begin with. And um, you hear it on um, How High the Moon Pops Into My Head. Yeah. You can hear Mary Ford um, doing all these harmonies on top of herself. And, and they're gorgeous. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're great. <laughs> and Les is doing harmonies with his guitar and, and all that. And again, that had to have sounded really modern because how can there be two of you singing? Mm-hmm. That's just, you know, and guitar, you know, there's enough finesse from one guitar player to the next to where two guys could stand there and do a harmony. And it would be one thing. But if you do your own harmony, you're going to have the same style and it's going to lock in more. So, yeah, less less invented that. But he's the guy. He's the guy. Right. Now, take us from that point where, you know, we we talked about around 1969. You know, here we've got the Beatles starting to record an eight track. And, you know, the number of tracks, it was basically the tech seemed to be the same, pretty consistent up through the early 80s. Take us from that point in, in, say, 69 up to the early 80s just before digital recording came into common practice. Sure. That was the golden era of recording. And that's the era that I've obsessed with my whole life. Um, I just thought um, engineers started to become artists where before they were worker bees. Mm -hmm. And studios, uh, there was so much money being made in the record business in the 70s that labels were throwing around cash. and, And they wanted to spend a lot of money. They want a great product to sell. So they had no problem, you know, writing big fat checks. That's where recording studios, if you were in the right market, could afford to buy a hundred thousand dollar console at you know in 1972. Right. Um, I have a price list from um, Studer tape decks from the mid 70s, and a Studer machine was like fifty thousand dollars back then. Mm-hmm. You know, the average person couldn't afford something like that. Right. So these studios started popping up, and it was almost like. Um, not competition, but the engineering was getting better and better and better as time went on. But it was still one of those things where, you know, you had to have great players. Right. And if you didn't have great players, you didn't have a great recording. But that was the, the era of Steely Dan, you know, and Doobie Brothers records sounded fabulous. And, you know, all of them, all of those records sounded so great. Yeah. You know, and... Um, the technology was, you know, they had 24-track tape machines. Mm-hmm. They had um, these beautiful transistor consoles. Tube was pretty much out by the end of the 60s because um, it was just so impractical. Right. To have a board, say, the size of mine. My, my board is nine feet long. If this were all tube, it would be the size of a room. 
Mm -hmm. So it, it's just not practical. Um, so um, that has a lot to do with the sound of the times where the transistor consoles. And then um, studio musicians also were starting to pop up. You know, they were using, well, that, that happened in the 60s too. But no, it was, I think it was just getting really defined and refined in that mm -hmm. period of what that technology can do. And, and no, it didn't grow much in the 70s. It was the techniques that grew. Right. Yeah. Right. You talk about the studio musicians and mm -hmm. I'm going to I'm going to kind of take a little detour here. But I think about the studios and the musicians mainly out in L.A. Mm -hmm. in the 60s where you had the cream of the crop, the wrecking crew. Yep. You know, and they knew their studios because every day they were shuttling between Capital and Western and Gold Star. Yeah, they're all freelance, yeah. Yep. And they knew these studios. They had to know these mm -hmm. studios. And they knew the producer, and they knew what the producer's preferences were. And yeah. mm -hmm. Yep. So what possibilities and opportunities then did digital recording open up? So digital in general at first. Um, the, the, the promise was you were able to copy things exact. So if I wanted to copy something off of a tape, it's going to go through some sort of process and go on to another tape. And then any cons that the tape has is going to be imprinted on that copy, you know, and through the process, does it have to go through a console? Does it, you know, it's never an exact copy, mm -hmm. um, unless you have a master and you're mass producing stuff where with digital it's ones and zeros, it's information. And that information can be copied exact to over here. So that was kind of the, the first kind of crazy thing about it. And uh, it didn't have the idiosyncrasies of tape. Well, there was digital tape also, but right. um, the digital technology in general didn't have the hiss that the tape has. So now you have a wider dynamic range and you can, you can do a lot more with that. Lots of people um, are romantic about the sound of tape you know, because that went away, but um, history has proved that it doesn't matter to the marketplace. Yeah. Right. So, so that was the original thing with, with digital. And then they talked about, you know, editing at some point in the future, but that wasn't up front, not, not too much in the eighties. But when MIDI came along, then you could sync things together quite easily. So, um, you could have synthesizers playing, you hit play on a, on a tape deck and the synthesizer will play the part automatically. You know, mm -hmm. so now you don't have to waste a track. That'll just play alongside during the mix. Right. You know, or you can layer things and, and do all sorts of crazy stuff. So it just started to open the door for some things that we could do. But I remember the first computer I recorded on and that was just, I didn't understand it at all. <laughs> it made mm -hmm. no sense to me. Um, and it felt like a toy. It absolutely felt like a toy. I'm like, this isn't real music. This isn't real, but it was, and that was going to be the future. Right. I had a friend back in the 80s when we were attending the UW in Madison who bought one of the first Macintosh 128Ks. That was the powerhouse machine <laughs> of the day. Yep. And he went to the School of Music, laid out, I want to do this as my major, designed his own major, and he called it music engineering. Hmm. And now everybody's doing it. Yeah. Yeah, so mm -hmm. this is how far things have come. Oh, yeah. What were the drawbacks of digital compared to analog? The sound. The original digital machines, 16-bit, um, low rates, they just didn't sound as good. 
Um, mm. See, I, I had the very first ADAT machine in Wisconsin. I was on a waiting list for a year. And an ADAT is a um, digital recording machine that recorded on VHS tapes. And um, I had the first one. And the first thing I did, it was an 8-track, um, is I recorded something on track one from a CD. Then copied that to track two and copied that to track three all the way to track eight. And it sounded almost identical to the first track. I'm like, no, no extra tape hiss. Cause every time you bounce something to another track, you're adding more noise and background and stuff. And to my ear at the time, because I was so frustrated with analog hissing mm-hmm. that, it, Oh wow, this is the greatest thing on earth. Eventually I got to the point where there's something missing here. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's a richness that's a harmonic richness that's missing in digital. And that was right up through my first Pro Tools rig. I didn't like the way it sounded at all. Mm-hmm. And my thing was, cause I, I have a 24 track analog machine, um, at the beginning of a project was if you want to sound good, we're going to tape. Right. If you suck, we're going to digital. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't say it that way, but that's kind of how I looked at both projects. But eventually and once we start talking about AI, I'll go into my history with technology a little bit. But eventually, um, it won me over because I bought some converters that are right behind me that sound great. That mm-hmm. really, really sound great. I don't feel like I'm missing anything. And I record super high resolution. I hear a difference. I feel a difference more than I hear a difference. But um, a lot of people think that I'm crazy, you know, that it doesn't matter. But it matters to me. So right. that. So that, that was the big thing about digital is that it just didn't sound good. Right. Well, I remember reading of Donald Fagan walking into a studio one day and the engineer was uh, using a tape machine. And he goes, that's a nice $50,000 compressor you got there. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> you got the tape compression. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Going now from, OK, digital got better. How have things evolved from when digital hit the scene until today now? Well, the big thing was editing, is that um, once Pro Tools kind of hit the mainstream, mm-hmm. which is 98, 99, somewhere in there, now we can fix mistakes all day long. And there were things that we, us engineers used to joke about back in the, in the early days of like, well, wow. if I could just take that phrase from, from the second chorus and put it over the first chorus, boy, would, my, would that be great. Well, now it, it's every day. You know, it's every minute I'm working on this thing, I'm doing that stuff. Right. The big thing for me as an engineer is the undo button. So on tape, you're actually printing onto magnetic particles. And if you make a mistake and erase something, it's forever. There's no going back. And I've done it. For very important clients, I've erased whole saxophone solos and stuff. And it's nerve-wracking. And you have to keep documentation of everything. And if you put a solo on track 13 that doesn't start until, you know, 2 minutes 30 seconds, you need to know that on that piece of paper so you don't put a shaker over the top of it. So for me, um, I remember how tense it used to be recording of just, you know, making sure you didn't mess up and that sort of thing. Now, I don't even have to hit save on Pro Tools. It auto-saves every minute for me. You know, I have so many, such a safety net up here. So that Mm -hmm. to me is really important. And then, you know, some not as good stuff happened. (laughs) Auto-tune. Right. (laughs) Which is terrible. Um, But it was all the rave there for a while. Mm -hmm. And I remember because, you know, my my style of recording comes in and out of fashion in waves. Right. And I've heard people talking downtown like, Rock Garden doesn't even use auto-tune. How unprofessional. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) 
Um, but what we would do is, you know, you sing every line 50 times until you got it right. And then you move on to the next line and then you move on to the next line, you know, or someone slops through it and they're happy with that. What, however it works. But all this syncing that was going on in the eighties and nineties and now, you know, everything's working together. They, there stopped to be a need for musicians. Now you got programmers who are the producers and, um, it's a different way of doing things. It doesn't matter in the marketplace. It really doesn't because that's the popular music, not the bandy stuff that uses guitars and drums. Mm-hmm. You know, you see a, a group of millennial girls, you know, singing at the top of their lungs to Rihanna's um, Better Have My Money. They don't care that it was a TR-808 doing the drums. <laughs> right. <laughs> they just like their song, you know. So in, in the big picture, it really doesn't make a difference. You know? Right. Now, the technology these days that's getting the buzz is artificial intelligence or AI. So we're kind of coming back to how this topic even started. Mm -hmm. And uh, a form of it was used to isolate and enhance John Lennon's vocal for the new single Now and Then by the Beatles. And that started with a cassette demo that John recorded Mm -hmm. of himself on a boombox in his living space, him and a piano. So those two things were together on that tape since 1978, I believe. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. What do you personally think of AI as a recording tool? So I have to explain my history with technology is I have always hated modern technology because mm-hmm. I never, I didn't understand the use of it. And when, when a technology first starts out and in intro, being introduced to the public, it's not great yet. Mm-hmm. It's never great yet. And then, you know, the, the older guys can go and can point at things, you know, well, it's this and it's that, and it's, you know, it'll never do that. And, it, you know, well, they'll, they'll solve those problems. They'll work through that. If the marketplace demands it, they'll solve those problems eventually. And they always do the way I said, like digital sounded bad. It sounds good now. Mm-hmm. You know, they fixed that problem. So now I can, you know, be happy with it. I've always just like anytime something new came out, I'd be rolling my eyes. And then that new thing would prove me wrong. Mm-hmm. So now I'm at the age where I've done that enough times to understand that, oh, okay, this is a thing. This is the future. I don't necessarily have to embrace it and use it, but I understand it. And I see the potential, the trajectory of what this is. Mm-hmm. And what I really think AI is going to do, given enough time, is you know, right now the, the big fear in the industry, in the movie industry and, and record industry, is copyright. Mm-hmm. of, you know, material and images and stuff where they'll do a deep fake of this actor and he won't get paid for it, you know, mm-hmm. and chat GPT is like a big Google search engine that just rips off, you know, people too. I think what's going to happen eventually is we're not going to have human pop stars. We're not going to have human celebrities anymore. Um, for instance, if you look at YouTube, which again, I didn't get when it first came out, I didn't mm-hmm. understand it at all. And now I spend way too much time on it. But um, before that, you had broadcast. Mm-hmm. And um, everybody had to be there while it was being broadcast. So on Sunday night, if everyone loves the Ed Sullivan show, everyone has to be done with dinner and sitting in front of a television. And you had this communal experience with everybody else. Right. Well, it was a, a weekly appointment, really. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then YouTube comes out. And now you, you can stream things at your own will. 
and you can decide what you want to watch and how you want to watch it, you know, and same with Netflix and all those sort of things. So now it's individualized and everyone, I think everyone understands how these algorithms work with social media Mm -hmm. is that it figures out your preferences and for good reasons and nefarious, but you know, it, it figures you out. Right. So, and the way, um, say, uh, Spotify, um, will come up with playlists for you based on your preferences. I think in the future, we're going to have algorithms that will learn you and give you what you want, the content that you want. So it could be a movie Mm -hmm. and it'll know that you like, you know, a certain type of, you know, member of the opposite sex, a certain hair color, a certain this, a certain that, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that will be your, your leading character. In this movie you just rented or you just downloaded, mm-hmm. um, I think it will be absolutely tailored to the consumer and there won't be any copywriting. There won't be any of that stuff. You know, and the only way someone else is going to have the same experience is if they're in the room with you. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's the direction this is all going in. And right now it's kind of hard to see because AI looks and sounds weird yet. Yes. You know, they'll solve that. They'll fix those problems. Mm-hmm. But eventually, you know, you won't be able to tell the difference. And that will be the new way of, of entertainment. Now, what are your thoughts regarding AI-generated songs versus human-generated songs? Um, again, I think at this point, AI is just ripping off you mm-hmm. know, other stuff. Um, to a certain extent, it's still plagiarizing. It takes our information to make that happen. Right. You know? The same way where they, they talk with artwork of like, well, you're not painting by hand. Well, I'm a better prompter than you are. Mm-hmm. So I, I can build a better AI portrait because my prompting skills are better. Mm-hmm. That's the way it is, you know, like right. it or not. So yeah, I think that's, that's really what's, what's going to happen. And, um, we're just not there yet. Mm-hmm. You know? Now, do you think it might come down to one specific thing, and that being the difference between the two is the human soul? Well, again, Rihanna's song, You Better Have My Money, (laughs) I hear it all the time, and and girls love it. There's no humans playing on it. Yeah. So, you know, there's no human soul behind the drum set. There's no mm-hmm. Steve Lukather playing guitar. It's all programmed into a computer that's playing exact, and those girls don't care. Mm-hmm. So it, it's going to be the same in the future. Now, the thing is, every generation has the back-in-my-day mentality, yep. you know, and I used to do that too. And, um, um, yeah, of course, that's what I miss because that's how I was brought up. Mm-hmm. But someone born today isn't going to miss anything that I miss about my day. Right. So um, to them, you know, a human soul might be, you know, someone programmed this beautiful algorithm that speaks to my soul. Right. You know, mm-hmm. and, and and the interface is this AI entertainment. Mm-hmm. I think that is going to be there's still humans involved as long as we stay in control of it. There will be still humans behind these things, the same way there's a programmer behind pop music. I keep going back because I said it would never happen, but there's a, a photographs of Billie Eilish and her brother Phineas holding like 10 Grammys, mm-hmm. you know, the year that she broke. And that was for a record that was recorded in his bedroom right. on a computer with her sitting on the bed holding a microphone. Mm-hmm. And they created that. And, you know, that to me used to be the cheap way, you know, and it's not. That is the way now. Mm-hmm. There's no human, there's no drummers on that record. There's no groovy bass players. Right. You know, but there's still a soul there, mm-hmm. you know. Okay. I think Bjork said once is like, a machine has as much soul as you put into it. Yeah. yeah. 
Now, talking about the Beatles, let's come back to them now. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got Now and Then, yep. and which incorporates recordings over a span of, what, 30 years-ish? I think that's yeah. when they did the anthology, yeah. Yeah, so starting, you know, in 1978 with John recording his demo, come up to 1994-95 when they were working on the anthology series. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that time, you know, they took two of the other demos that John did, Free as a Bird and uh, Real Love, mm-hmm. made singles out of those. And then now we come up all the way here to... 2022, 23, and we've got what they're calling the final Beatles song, but right. yet it took this entire span. Well, they shelved the song, and I think there's a good reason, <laughs> reason. why. <laughs> you know, not necessarily the song quality, but I don't think it's Lennon's best work. I, I was really disappointed with the whole thing because I kept hearing this AI, Beatles AI, and I'm like, okay, let's see what AI can do. Are they going to take his voice and then AI will build the Beatles song around it? You know, I was mm-hmm. really excited. Come to find out, no, it just extracted his voice from the piano, which it did a really good job. His voice is very right. clear on it, you know, um, and they couldn't have done that back in 95. So yeah, it, it worked great for, for whatever that was. I've used that technology already. Mm-hmm. Um, there's websites where you can upload a song and it'll separate it for you and, you know, right. Bob's your uncle. But yeah, I, um, what was the question again? <laughs> well, it, we were looking at, um, over the span of, from 1978 oh. until yeah. now that it's released, mm-hmm. You know, we've got all these different technologies incorporated into it. We've got recordings that were done 78, 94, 2022. And there just seems to be, in my ears, inconsistency mm-hmm. between when all of these things were recorded. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and the thing is, even, even having the remaining Beatles playing on those records, they don't play the way they used to. No, Ringo's a completely different drummer than he was in the '60s. So yeah, it's them playing, but to me, it's still not a Beatles song. You know, it's it's they doctored up some Lennon demos, and okay, it's neat that they're all on the same recording and stuff. But mm-hmm. um, I wish they would have taken AI a lot farther with this this last one. I wish they would have let AI write the whole song and take his voice and do whatever, and really come up with something mm-hmm. that AI thinks is the Beatles. You know, that right. even if it sucked, it would be interesting. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. Right. Yeah. To me, a Beatles recording, or any band for that matter, is the band proper is together in the studio working on it together. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Nowadays, there's a lot of tracks being flown around the world. Yep. You know, and I do a lot more of that stuff, too. And some are really good. I, I got one of my heroes to play on a few recordings. There's mm-hmm. this group that no one knows about called Jellyfish back in the late 80s, early 90s. And musicians and engineers know them because they put out two of the most fabulous records ever. I got the keyboard player and co-songwriter of all the songs and co-singer to play on a, couple, on a Tom Thiel track and on an Amelia Ford track. <laughs> you know, right. it, was, it was crazy. I'm communicating with one of my heroes because of technology. Mm-hmm. And he has a great studio at home, and he recorded the stuff, sent it over. It was wonderful. That's happening a lot more. You know, session players like Lee Sklar, um, he does a lot of remote session work and stuff. Now is that, you know, it's not necessarily a band, but that doesn't mean it's bad either. Right, right. Now, one last thing regarding the Beatles, Mm -hmm. and they've just recently released the Red and the Blue albums, Mm -hmm. expanded. They've added tracks. 
and remixed. Yeah. What is your view on remixing classic tracks? Yeah. No, it isn't because the original masters are sacred in any way. That, that isn't kind of my point. But if you want to experience history, mm-hmm. why would you want to experience a modern take on history? So, for instance, you've got the Mona Lisa. I want to see the Mona Lisa. But someone could come along and go, well, the paints today are far superior than when they were then. So let's just cover it up with new paint and, and make it nice and presentable for everybody. That's what they're doing to me. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're covering over the Mona Lisa, repainting the Mona Lisa. Even though Giles Martin, the son of the original producer, did it, you know, and maybe they had some vintage gear. I, I don't, you know, I don't know. But when I listen to a Beatles record, I want it to be the same recording, the same master that changed the world. Yeah. With all of its warts and, you know, like they talk about, you know, how, because on the radio once in a while you'll hear a modern mix on a Beatles song. And um, they'll talk about how clear the drums are and everything. I'm like, yeah, they're more clear, but they're less musical. You can't compile that equipment anymore. It's, that's never going to happen. You'll never recreate that. Mm-hmm. So all you can do is change it. And me personally, I don't want changes. I, right. I, I, don't, want, I, I don't need to hear a clearer version of something. Mm-hmm. I want the version that changed the world. Right. Yeah. When you said you know, you're presenting the work with warts and all at that time, it makes me think of the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds. Mm-hmm which is one of the most incredible albums ever. And the thing is loaded full of warts. Oh, yeah. And that's what I like about this stuff, mm-hmm. is that it's organic. Oh, with, with me, um, one day I was upset about this subject. And mind you, in a recording studio, everything is subjective, but artists are very, very sensitive. And sometimes they want to take things way too far as far as fixing mistakes and you know all that sort of stuff. Obviously, if there's a blatant mistake, you fix it, you know, but, right. um, you know, you can take it too far and drive your engineer nuts. And eventually your mistakes become his fault. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so many times people are mad at me because they made too many mistakes. Yeah. But um, one day I was driving home and uh, Stairway to Heaven came on the radio and I'm like, I'm going to critically listen to this thing. Because to me, that was one of the most beautiful recordings of the 70s. It, it just... I, I just write in the warm fuzzies, you know, mm-hmm. and the first note is a mistake. Right. The first note, the tape machine hadn't sped up to speed yet. Jimmy Page blows notes all over the thing. If you're really listening to him playing that 12 string and stuff, mm-hmm. it's a sloppy performance. Um, John Bonham's pedal squeaks. Um, Robert Plant cracks. I mean, the whole thing. If you're listening with a critical ear. Mm-hmm. But the audience isn't listening with a critical ear. They, they're not. Um, all they want is they have one requirement, and it's to be moved by a song. Right. That's it. That's all that matters to them. Mm-hmm. Going back to better have my money. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, they, it's, that's really, really what matters. Um, for me as, you know, a fan of the Beatles, I want the history. I want the historic thing. The modern one doesn't sound the same. It doesn't give me the same, um, what's, what's the, um, when you smell apple pie, you think of grandma. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sort of thing, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I had, they, they do those for business reasons. That, that's really it. They, we don't need another Beatles remix. We don't need another master. Right. Um, some businessmen do. 
because mm-hmm. they just purchased the rights to some portion of the empire and they're going to make a, a return on their investment. That, right. That's really all it is, is repackaging. And that gives me even more reason not to listen to it. You know? Right. One of the other warts that comes to mind for me is the bass drum pedal at the very beginning of Stevie Wonder's Superstition. Oh, yeah. You hear that thing squeaking, but to me, that is some of the charm mm-hmm. of the song. Oh, yeah. And of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that, again, that's something I deal with here all the time. Sometimes someone will make such a brilliant mistake. I mean, that's so much better than what you planned on playing, but to them, that wasn't what they intended, and it's always going to be a mistake. Right. You know, and um, for the last... I don't know, 10 years or so, I've had this rule when I'm actually producing. That means like a solo artist comes to me or or something like that. With a band, I let them be who they are. But Mm -hmm. when I'm doing it, every track has to have something quirky about it. Right. Maybe something quirky that only I know about. But there has to be a a quirk element in there. Mm -hmm. Um, Because all my favorite records do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the thing about AI, I mean, it's certainly an interesting topic, and and it's one to watch and listen to in the years to come. So, Mark, thanks for taking the time to give us this little history lesson today. Mm -hmm. And uh, as for you and Rock Garden Studio, are there any projects that we can be looking forward to in the near future? You know, I can never, everyone's like, hey, you working on anything cool? Yeah, always. I just can never remember when people ask me. (laughs) (laughs) But just keep checking out your local music scene. There's there's always great stuff happening. Yeah, excellent. Well, go ahead and let listeners know where they can find you online, find the studio online, and how they can contact you for your recording services, your video services. Just rockgardenstudio.com. You can go to the website and um, get a hold of me through there. Send me an email, and we can set up an appointment for audio or video or whatever whatever you need. Sounds good. Well, Mark, again, thank you so much. Appreciate your time, your talent, your knowledge, and uh, everything. Certainly appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, my guest today has been Whammy Award-winning producer and owner of Rock Garden Studio, Mark Goldie. Join me next time when jazz vocalist Erin Krebs makes her Into the Music debut. Jazz Is Magazine said she might be the best-kept secret of her native Wisconsin. So tune in, and you're going to find out why. Thanks for listening, and please share Into the Music with your friends and on your socials. We really appreciate it when you give the show that signal boost. So long for now, and we'll see you next time we get Into the Music. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Into the Music. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and odyssey.com. Drop us a line on our socials or email us at intothemusic at newprojectx.com. To support Into the Music, go to buymeacoffee.com slash intothemusic. Your support keeps the show going and is always greatly appreciated. This show is copyright 2023 Project X Productions. Join us next time we get into the music. God bless and take care, everybody.